Greetings and welcome to this week's performance of My Favourite Flop. At this time, we ask that you turn up the volume on all cell phones, laptops and car stereos as loud as possible. And now, sit back, relax and enjoy the show. We're back like that dinosaur movie from the 90s that nobody remembers. I love that movie. Of course you have seen that movie, Christina. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. I'm excited to jump into another Flopalicious episode. Yeah. And also, I should say that tonight, Bobby and I decided to stay in theme for the What Have You Been Listening To? Yeah, because otherwise it's... Kind of confusing. It might be confusing. So these are not flops, but the shows that we're going to be talking about are a preview was enough, even though they weren't flops. For us, they were, it was enough. Uh, Yeah. So Christina, on that note, um, what did you go back and re-listen to this week? Mamma Mia. Oh, Mamma Mia. Yeah. It was one of the first Broadway shows I ever saw. Okay. And I remember sitting there thinking... Why are we watching this? Oh, no. No disrespect. And I I totally understand why people love it. I do. Okay. I just... We had seen... The first Broadway show I ever saw was the original cast of Hairspray. Okay. I mean, that's, we had that was a good show. the night before. Right. And then we go to see Mamma Mia the next night. And I was like, nope. No. Oh, no. Not as good. It's just not as good. And so I do wonder if that colored my feelings on it. Okay. But it just, I mean, yeah, it's a feel-good musical. and It just felt contrived to me, which is funny because I was like 16. Like, okay. oh, That was prime age for some Mamma Mia, actually. Yeah. And I, I yeah, it just was, it wasn't my jam. It was oh. not my jam. I enjoy some of the songs. Okay. But it's so repetitive, especially for a musical. Okay. I'm just like, I get it. Let's get to the point. And like the best part of the show, I will say, are the three ladies. The two best friends and the mom. And like, I've never wanted to be in the show as a young person. But I think that when I get to that age, I would love to like tackle one of the moms. Okay. Um, Just because they have all the good stuff in the script. Okay. And they have all the good funny. Okay. Yeah, I mean, look, I I I have different opinions about Mamma Mia. Um, but I do agree that I think the best material is for Donna and her two friends. Yeah. I have some questions for you because this is about revisiting material and re-listening. Yeah. Um, first off, you saw it on Broadway. That was enough. Yeah. Um, did you ever see the movie in the sequel or no? Uh, I did go see the movie because um, okay. a bunch of my friends wanted to go. And I think it was someone's birthday. Okay. And so we went to see it. And ironically, we're in the middle. I think we're in like the first 20 minutes of the film. And okay. something went wrong with the projector. Oh, no. And it just stops playing. And I was oh, like, no. oh, this is funny. This oh. is really funny. You, did you and think so- it was part of the movie? No, I oh. was just, I just thought it was ironic because I really don't like the show. Oh, no. <laughs> but I, the, the thing I did, I did end up seeing the whole thing all the way through, I think, at some point. And the, the one takeaway from it was how much fun Meryl Streep was having. Okay. And I could appreciate that. I was like, this woman never gets to play these kind of roles. No, yeah. Good for you. You're having the time of your life. It's not a great film, but well done. Uh, and I definitely never went and saw the sequel, so that was okay. not a thing. I mean, look, I enjoy Meryl quite a bit in that movie. And when yeah. she sings songs like Mamma Mia, and she's got her hands in the pockets of her overalls, and she's just kind of shaking around, I'm like, you earned this. Hollywood mm-hmm. denied this for you for 50 years. Yeah. And you earned this. And you're getting paid a lot of money <laughs> to do this. And I'm glad that I've been able to contribute. But yeah, I, I think you would make it a great... I think you would make a great Donna one day. Thank um, you. Maybe. Yeah. No, but, look. Yeah. That's that's me and Mamma Mia. Yeah. Mamma <laughs> Mia. All right. Well, there, Bobby, there you go. what have you been listening to? Well, what did you revisit, I should say? 
I revisited a show that I don't know if technically is a hit, although Instagram and Twitter and TikTok would say that it is, um, and people will fight you about it. Um, a show that I didn't enjoy from the minute it started and was uncomfortable sitting through the entire thing and almost lost a friend over like my distaste for the show that I tried to keep to myself, but they kept prodding me and were very upset that I didn't enjoy it. I listened to Beetlejuice again. Um, And how was that? um, Well, to further expand on my experience seeing it on Broadway, uh, you know, this may have been mentioned onto this podcast before. I kind of wanted to just put the lid on Beetlejuice. If it officially flops with this return, we don't need to do it on this show. That's kind of why I'm bringing it to the table. Um, Yeah, I just got really excited about seeing it because as a kid, the movie was one of my favorite films. And as a weird five, six, seven-year-old, whose parents had HBO because we didn't have the real movie. We had it taped from TV with all the (laughs) commercials. Um, It was just consistently played in my house. So it's near and dear to me. And I'm a big Tim Burton fan and Gina Davis and Alec Baldwin and Michael Keaton and Winona Ryder and Catherine. I mean, that whole cast, like I've, as a child was like, here are legends, go follow their careers, you know? Yeah. Um, I just, was so off the mark for me. And we might we might lose some 13-year-old listeners for we me might. this, but it's just a show that I thought missed the point so incredibly hard that I just it was like springtime for Hitler for me watching the show. I was like, why were these choices made? Every single one. Yeah. Yeah, we saw it as well. Um and our executive producer Stephen Weston definitely had same feelings. Okay. Okay. There were moments of it that I really enjoyed. Okay. Mostly because I think I'm not for other reasons because I I am not as like I've watched the film sure. a couple of times, but I didn't grow up with it in the way that you did, right? right? So like I'm I'm not going in expecting the same jokes. I'm not going in expecting the same thing. Right. But what really like unhinged me, I guess, as an audience member while watching it was how uncomfortable. I didn't know that the girl playing Lydia was going to make it through the show. It's uncomfortable listening to the recording. Yeah. And it's, so I mm-hmm. I think that's like where I was like, oh, I, I'm so, and like the teacher in me comes out and is like, oh, can I just help? Can I just help you fix it? Can I do? Oh, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> you know, yeah. like it's just like it's it's obvious problems. Um, but yeah. Alex Brightman, I have to say, like, I just was waiting for him to come back on. He works hard. I mean, it definitely wasn't Michael Keaton, you know? Yeah. Um, and in revisiting it, listening to the cast recording, I think I appreciated uh, some of what he did more than I did in the theater. Because mm. sometimes he's so high energy and so hard. And he's technically a very good singer and a rock singer, screamer and all of that. I think I could understand. I think I could appreciate the musicality of him better on the cast recording because mm-hmm. it wasn't as 150. It was 115. You know, mm-hmm. um, he works hard. He works. I don't know if he was the right choice, but again, I got opinions. Yeah, no, that's fair. Um, I will say that the choreography in the show was really. I think that that was one of the more exciting things about the show for me, especially sure. when they go into the underworld. The design bit. elements were amazing. Oh, across yeah. the board, like yeah, we actually got to go backstage because we have a. I had a friend in the show, and getting to see those sets and the way they were built and stuff. I mean, it was ridiculous. Yeah, and how oh, they fit crazy. them in that theater. I was like, I don't even. This is impressive, right? Um, because just for our listeners, like there is no room backstage, and those there are three house sets. And that's yeah. not including the underworld stuff. Right. So those house sets would actually break up into three pieces. Right. So they could fit them back. I mean, it was a masterpiece backstage. It was insane. The The design of the show is absolutely stunning. Oh, yeah. But I just, I like you, I'm interested to see. I know that they made changes. Oh, okay. Now that they're coming back. And I'm really interested to see. They've added a character. They've ta- They've like split up a character and made it two. Oh, um, and so I'm interested to see like how those changes help the show or maybe hurt the show. I don't know. You you never know until you're in it. Um, and they've also recast Lydia. So I mean, 
I'm interested to see. I'm interested to see how it goes. I know that everyone who was involved with it and it, who's back is really excited. And right. So hopefully they were able to take some time away and make the changes. Well, look, and just like Maryland, apparently because of the HBO Universal connection, I think they're filming it for HBO Max too. I think that's oh cool. Uh, either been announced or heavily rumored. So uh, for a show that a preview and a revisit was enough. If you say they're making some changes, I might give it a watch. But I, I, I definitely didn't make it through start to finish on the cast recording. There was a lot of skipping that happened. So, uh, <laughs> I, yeah, that was a, a preview was enough for me on that one. Well, anyway, I think we should jump into the meat of this, uh, Christina. We've given away our theme a little bit. A preview is enough. Um, you know, unlike our last episode, we don't really have to give a whole the curse of the bambino. You know, I mean, <laughs> it's pretty self-explanatory, right? Yeah, I would think so. Um, so why don't we give them a drum roll so we can announce this show? Right. So our first of two episodes, because we do episode pairs, a preview is enough. Part one. Our show is drum roll, please. <laughs> Rachel Lily Rosenblum. And don't you ever forget it. I tried to give you some Ellen Green. There. It was so good. Oh, it was no. so good. I really should have done the Ellen Green. <laughs> so, yes, this show uh, did not open, but previewed in 1973 on Broadway. Music right. and lyrics by Paul Jabara. Book by Paul Jabara and Tom. I think I'm saying this right. Tom Ian. So let's give the plot and then we're going to get into this. Rachel Lily Rosenblum is about the misadventures of the title character and her journey from a Brooklyn fish market to fame as a Hollywood gossip columnist, and then a career culminating in an Academy Award nomination and a nervous breakdown. Not the worst plot of a Broadway musical. No, I actually like you read that. You're like, yeah, I want to watch that. I want to know what happens. Well, then you're like, oh, they wrote this for Bette Midler. Like, sign me up. Sign me up, Sally. <laughs> Sign me up, Paul Jabara. Uh, so this show is is one of the ones that's near and dear to people. Like some of the ones that we covered in season one, like mm -hmm. chess. This is this is a flopaholic. Like this is I, how would you even describe it? Like this is cream of the cream of the flop. Okay. Yes, that <laughs> was good. Cream of the flop. Um, this is one of those ones that. Uh, People wish they had seen. People who saw it treasure it for the rest of their lives. They really do. Yeah, and I'm so glad that we get to cover it on this season on the podcast. Yeah, so let's talk about its creation. Because similar to what happened with Something Rotten, it didn't have much of a workshop process. No, not really. They wrote it for Bette Midler. Right. And so like had done some stuff with her on it. And then she was like, meh, never mind. No, thank you. But they still wanted to get it produced. So it, it and they put a lot of money into it. Uh, yes. To like, make this like a big Broadway spectacle. And so they had to find a new leading lady. Right. Miss Ellen Green. Miss Ellen, like 10 years, nine years before Little Shop, Ellen Green. Right. Yeah. So is this her first Broadway show? Oh, gosh. That's a question that I knew you were going to ask. Um, it might be. Uh, you know, pre-Little Shop, her career is hazy of what came what, and I don't have it in front of me at the moment, but I do know that at some point in the 70s, she starred opposite Raul Julia in the Three Penny Opera at mm. the Delacorte, Shakespeare right. in the Park, and that came to Broadway, um, and that was like a big deal. Uh, and then um, she did some other things, but Little Shop was really her like star turn. Right. But um, this, you know, Bette Midler turning it down, Bette is becoming a bigger star at this point was a huge deal for her to take over. And everything I read, this was meant to be her star turn. Like, it was a but big yeah. deal she got cast in this. And before audiences saw the show, there was a lot of anticipation that Ellen Green would become the next big thing on Broadway. Yeah. Well, and this show also gave opportunity to someone who we now know and love, but didn't know much about at the time, and that was Andre DeShields. Well, and and Kelly Bishop. Oh, right. Yeah, like and Wayne Salento. Like, uh, like everybody was in the yeah. ensemble of this show. Like, yep. um, 
So let's step back for two seconds because some of our listeners might not know who Paul Jabara is. Um, yes. For the world, the peons of the world, he's a famous songwriter who wrote, you know, just the Oscar winning song, uh, Last Dance by Donna Summer. Admiral. And, um, you know, wrote for tons of other people like Barbara Streisand, etc. Wrote the epic Donna Summer, Barbara Streisand duet, No More Tears, Enough is Enough. And if that wasn't all, he also wrote It's Raining Men. Like, come on. I mean... Come Who doesn't on. love that song? I know I do. Right. But you may, if you knew all of that, not know that he was a Broadway actor once upon a time. Yes, um, he was in Hair. He was in the original Broadway cast of Hair. He did Rocky Horror in LA. Yeah, yeah he replaced Tim Curry. Oh, yeah. As Frankenberger. Like, insane. So he was this Broadway kid who was this budding disco rock songwriter and just kind of had this love for Broadway and love for Barbara Streisand. Like, that's what I read is this this show, which the lead character kind of has a thing for Barbara Streisand. Yes. Ra Rachel Lilly does. Is well, kind in of, the demos, there's an entire song dedicated to Miss Streisand. Yes. It's a, and I like that song. I do, too, actually. It's a good one. I'm shocked that I've never given it to anybody. Like, I'm like, oh, I should have done that. You should have. Uh, it's a good one. It's a good one. Yeah. So this crazy little show happens with... Ellen Green instead. And um, they only make it through seven previews as well. Seven and previews. Here's what's nuts is that the final preview, because after a couple of the previews, they're like, oh, man, ah, this is not going to work. There's no saving it because they brought Tom Ian in to save the book. Right. When they were in rehearsals, because they were like, this isn't working because Rightfully so, Paul Jabara is in a book writer, right? So, like, they bring Tom in to try and save it and book doctor it. Right. And unfortunately, it just wasn't enough. And so they're like, we're going to have to close the show. So they take out a small ad in, I think, the New York Times and say, you know, it's going to close. And it caused mass hysteria with oh, theater yes. fans. And all of a sudden, they had a fully sold out show to the point where people were trying to scalp tickets outside for like triple the ticket price. For the final performance. For the final performance of this Epic. train wreck. I because they didn't want to miss it. In fact, I did find this quote, which I feel the need to bring up. This is from a gentleman who writes for the New York Times who saw Rachel Lilly, did not review it at the time, but then was later writing a an article about the Moose Murders, which is another epic play that flopped. Yes. And he was talking about, like, why do they keep trying if they know it's not working? All of that, right? So he then goes back and recalls going to see Rachel Lilly. And in this, he, he comes out after the show and he's, he was like, that was just rough. That was not worth it. I don't know why everyone's so excited. I'm so confused. Why is this a sold out show? Wow. He sees a friend in the lobby and goes up and is like, why, why is the house packed for this? And the, this is the quote. The friend surveys the lobby and says, these are all the people who didn't see breakfast at Tiffany's. Yeah. He was right. To this day, there are thousands of theater go goers, me include, included, who regret having missed the legendary 1960 flop. And they weren't going to make that mistake twice. And it, we covered Breakfast at Tiffany's. We did. And if you're interested, you can go back and listen to that on the Three Card Capote, Season 1, Episode 15. But... It's fascinating because it is. It's that thing of like you don't want to miss out on what could become musical theater history. Oh, absolutely. Right. You know, we we haven't, and I don't know if we ever will uh, on one of these episodes cover Carrie the musical. But it was kind of the same thing. Mm -hmm. Is that that opening slash closing weekend? It, once people knew that it was closing, is everyone was rushing to get tickets to it because you just you didn't want to miss. You didn't want to miss it. Like, no, you uh, wanted to be able to say you saw it and give I was your opinion. There, right? Because it's a badge of like honor to be like, I saw Rachel Lily Rosenblum. <laughs> I saw Breakfast at Tiffany's. I saw Carrie the Musical. You know, I read another article in the New York Times from later um, that it was written in 2017 
which we'll get to this at some point. But when they did this show in concert at 54 Below, Jennifer Ashley Tepper put that together. And the New York Times was talking about it. And they said, you know, the book, the book, the Bible is called Not Since Carrie, but because of the revival, everybody does it. So it's not really a flop anymore. You know, it's a, it's a popular show. He was like, you really need to retitle the book, not since Rachel Lily Rosenblum, because I mean, next in line, right under that. I don't know. I don't know if I'd consider Rachel Lily the next in line, but it's definitely it's definitely up. This show is crazy. It is. Okay, so let's talk about the actual. Yes. The actual plot of what happens. Now, I went and listened to the demo recording that you sent me. Okay. And the first couple of songs, I was like, yeah, I can get into this. I like yeah. this. In fact, like Steven was walking around doing something and I was like sitting at the table listening to it and I was like tapping my foot okay. to it. And I was like, yeah, I can get into this. And he comes out and he's like, what is happening? And I was like, oh, I'm listening to the demo. And he was like, so it's good. And I was like, yeah, it's not bad. Yeah. Um, and I liked it. Like the Barbra Streisand song. I was like, that's funny. That's good. You know, it's obviously done in good humor. And right. Um, and then it got to this one moment where it was like a scene in the in the demo where they start talking about how they don't understand why everyone's so obsessed with men's members. Oh, once it got to that point, I was like, wait, where are we yeah, right now? That was when we took the left turn. And I was <laughs> like, what's happening? Why are we talking about this? What's going on? And yeah, it was for me, it was it was going it was going until like the ta I think it's a taxi driver, like is the one who like takes her from Brooklyn to Hollywood. I mean, it's so corny, but yeah. Yeah. Um, and that was when I was like, and we've lost the plot. <laughs> so, yeah, essentially, Rachel, who has... So this is also a weird thing, too, because the show is called Rachel Lily Rosenblum, and don't you ever forget it, okay? But And she has an extra A in her name because she's obsessed with Barbara Streisand, so she's taking the, the A that Barbara dropped from her name right, and adding right. it. But then, like, halfway through the show, she changes her name to Raquel. And right. so then it's like, why is the show called Rachel Lily Rosenblum? And don't you ever forget it. Isn't your name Raquel now? Like, what, what's going on here? Yeah. So that, but it opens with her. She lives in Brooklyn, apparently on the same street that Barbara Streisand's from. She mm -hmm. sings this really cool. Actually, there's a recording. Did you get to see the concert at 54 Below on YouTube? No, I didn't get a chance to watch it. Ah, I should have texted you. It's fine. Um, you'll watch it after. Uh, Bonnie Milligan from Head Over Hills plays Rachel in it. Oh, so cool. She does a pretty good rendition of Dear Miss Streisand. Mm. But uh, Rachel works in a fish market. And so Dear Miss Streisand is she, followed by the song that's actually got pretty witty lyrics. Like, I, it like, does. I've, I've wor I, I'm working my way through shellfish. Um, I used to be in clams or something. And like you can hear the audience laughing on the live recording. And also at 50, people are digging it. But then, like you said, once she gets to, she's like, I, I, how does she, she takes Glinda, Glinda from Wizard of Oz is in this, but she's played <laughs> by a black actress. Like, right. <laughs> Glinda, is she the one who makes the taxi go to Hollywood? I, okay. I was not sure. I could okay. not figure it out. And I was trying to find like more detailed um, there's plot not. summaries and there's just not. So no. I was like, I don't actually know what happens but in the demo recording the taxi driver sounds <laughs> slavic i guess maybe um, hey, well and paul jabara is lebanese so maybe right maybe. so that makes sense okay um but yeah and i but he sounds like he kind of reminded me of the character from oklahoma oh ali hakim yeah it, it was like old school characterization of that right like that's what it felt like <laughs> okay um and so, yeah, I, it just confused me. And then he kind of disappears and then she meets new people in Hollywood. But I can't like the problem was I couldn't grasp on to like what her relationship was with each of these new characters. Right. And For what they gave her as the as the lead actor to further her story. Well, she becomes someone's assistant, and I don't think we can say the name of this character on this podcast because we don't want a PG rated R rating. But right. um, it's something star, 
beep off. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, is there, and there's a whole song where they start chanting her name. And I was like, is this happening? Is this really happening? Yeah. It's really <laughs> strange, especially for a 1970s musical. It just doesn't uh, feel right. But, it, it, but she starts working as this person's assistant. Mm-hmm. But then at some point, is she an actress? Is she a rock star? Like, I don't know what happens after this point. The, the Academy Awards are involved somehow. Yeah, like, somehow she gets there. And no idea a, how. A gossip columnist, too? Like, I don't... Yeah, and that's where, again, that's where it lost the plot. Like, I really think that there is a place for something like this. Like, the fact that they wrote this wonderful character who, based on the descriptions, she is not attractive. Right. She is overweight. Yes. She, you know, she kind of looks clownish right. in, in like how she does her makeup because she doesn't know how, but she doesn't care is the point. Like she, right. she doesn't care what people think of her. And so when people tell her, no, you can't do that. Why would you think you can do that? You're not a star. Look at how, look at you. Right. And she's like, don't tell me I can't. It like right. goes and does it. And I there is something so endearing about that and I love and I relate to and I'm like, great, let's write a musical about that human. Right. And then it just like there the problem was is that the story didn't support the character. Um, and that's what made me sad in a way, because the, what a wonderful opportunity to like showcase that kind of an actress, one. Sure. And then for it to be forward thinking in that it she's not sad about how she looks. Right. She's happy about it. She loves herself. And I was excited for that. Like, especially as a woman, like that was so great to see like body positivity in it. Right. And then it doesn't follow that trajectory at all. Well, you know, and you add the layer, this was written for Bette Midler by Bette mm-hmm. Midler's friends. You know what I mean? And I think you know, one of the things that was most fascinating to me when, when I mean, and I paid a lot of money to go see it, but I'm so glad that I did. When Bette Midler came back to Broadway with Hello, Dolly, there was a lot of like fanfare. Bette is finally coming to Broadway. And she would point blank in interviews because she is a no-nonsense human being. She's like, I'm not just coming to Broadway. She's like, I did this. I I worked hard and it didn't work. <laughs> it didn't work. That's why I became a regret artist and I did concerts and I went to Hollywood. Broadway didn't want me. You know, Beth's story, I'm gonna cry. Uh, not a lot, but Beth's story in the 70s, you know, she comes to New York and she gets cast in the ensemble of Fiddler on the Roof. So she's not even a lead and she's an understudy. So she really was a Broadway chorus girl and eventually played Zydel. She did the show for a long time. Um, famously, she auditions for Jesus Christ Superstar you know, in audition by Michael Shirtliff, she's they say she gave the literal best audition of anybody who auditioned for the original Broadway production, and they didn't cast her. And when she asked why, they said, you're just too good. It's not Mary Magdalene superstar. And it's like, it blows my mind to think, how do you not cast the person who gives the best audition? Mm. And that's got to break you as an actress. Yeah. Because they're telling you you're too fabulous to star in the show. And meanwhile, down the street, you're in Anatevka in the ensemble. You're like in the ugliest, frumpiest Anatevka <laughs> chorus girl. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Wh- I, I, I'm, I'm sure she's thinking like, if I can do that, I, I can play Mary. I'm good to go. Yeah. You know. And she's singing in bathhouses, and she's she's weird. She's funky. She's not the most attractive woman on the planet, at least conventionally. She's overweight, so her friends write her this show. But I can understand why she turned it down. I mean, yeah, I mean, I, the, the script wasn't there. And and the yeah. thing I've always loved about Bet is that she's an actor first. Mm-hmm. Always, even even in her pop recordings, right. she tells the story in a way that other pop divas at the time did not. Right. Um, and that's something I truly love about her. So I can imagine that she read that script and, you, and was like, you know what? It's great that you know, Paul Jabara is involved and and all of these people and that you believe in me so much, but that's not a good enough script, right? Like, I'm not surprised. What's interesting to me is that during this season, she actually had a a concert happening simultaneously on Broadway. Oh, yes. Was it Clams on a Half Shell? Was that the one? Uh, I couldn't find the name of it. I just saw on IBDB. 
that she had her one woman show happening at the same time. Amazing. Obviously, it's a limited engagement situation. But yeah, and I was like, well, that's ironic. But yeah, it was. I'm not surprised by it. I am surprised by replacing her with Ellen Green. It's fascinating. And I kind of see why Ellen Green like you just said with Bette Midler, is not conventionally beautiful. Even though she's a thin woman and she's in incredible shape, right. Like she's not a conventional beauty. Right. And again, is another actress that is an actor first, especially in musical theater. Again, another diva I absolutely love and follow. But when I looked up the production photos for this, they put her in a fat suit. Yeah. And I, that to me feels like a disservice to the piece you wrote and to her and to this idea that they were going for. Right. Because like either find, find someone who is not a thin woman, right? And who is not conventionally pretty and encompasses all those things. Or right. let Ellen Green be who she is, who is also not conventionally pretty just because she's thin. Right. And lean into that, you know? And so it felt like a disservice on all sides to all people. And that was unfortunate. And also one of the things I noticed in the production photos was like, it kind of looked like they were on a late night variety show. Yeah. I wish there was, (laughs) I wish there was video. I wish there were more photos because I'm like, was it done? Like, is it sketches? Is it a, is it a book? I I just don't know because that demo recording has narration and I wasn't, I was curious, is this narration in the show or is it just on this demo recording? You know what I mean? I was trying to work that out as well. Because like, it wasn't, it wasn't in the board recording from the previous. Bravo. Okay. Got it. Okay. At least not that, not in the same way. Like maybe there were lines that ended up getting divvied out to different people. Okay. I kind of liked the narration in the demo, especially it at kind the of top. Fairy tale like, you know uh-huh. what I mean? Um, the show reminded me a little bit of, um, fade out, fade in, you know, a legendary Carol Burnett show. Um, well, you don't, you need to Christina homework. This is a, what am I been listening to at some point? Okay. Yeah. Carol Burnett show that ended up a lot of music being recycled in hallelujah baby because of drama that we don't need to get into right now. But the idea of, of a small town girl who becomes a Hollywood star, you know what I mean? Right. But Carol Burnett, crafted for the talents of Carol Burnett, who could have been interested in this, but also not overweight. It is weird that they put her in a fat suit. And it's one of the things I appreciated about Bonnie Milligan at 54 Below is they let a plus size, you know, unconventional, you know, leading lady star in this, the way that it Mm -hmm. was meant to to happen back in 1973. Yeah. Yeah. That that I also appreciate. It was interesting listening to the demo because I think a lot of the demo was sung by Paul. Paul? Yeah, I think it's um, Paul. I think it's Paul. But it really reminded... I did a musical that did not make it past LA called Mod Rock. And okay. it's all, it was a jukebox musical with like the Kinks and Herman's Hermits and songs from that era, right? right. And when I was listening to it, I was like, gosh, this sounds so much like the Kinks. It sounds like I'm doing mod rock again. Like it was so yeah. interesting to me because he is a disco writer. Right. Right. He's of the disco era. And I was like, I don't hear the disco in it. I I hear this mod rock thing, which was really interesting to me. And it, maybe it's just his voice and how he sings. But yeah, I found that to be interesting. I think it's a little bet too. You know, you have to think mm. in the 70s, she was really you think of the movie The Rose, I mean, she sounds and is acting like Janis Joplin. So in the 70s, she was doing a lot of 70s rock. And then she was doing, you know, throwback material like uh, the Andrews Sisters, you know? So there was this juxtaposition she did between both styles back then. And you really kind of feel that in the score. There's not a ton of disco. Yeah, I didn't get the... I mean, everything I read, they're like, it's a disco show. And I was like, this doesn't feel like a disco show. No. I mean, the costumes, again, from going back to the production photos, they definitely had that feel to it, but it was like disco meets 50 other eras. Right. Like they had the victory curls in the hair at one point. Okay. Like from the 40s. And sure. But while wearing these big platformed disco heels. And I was like, oh, that's strange. 
I mean, you know, everyone loves a throwback. They loved him in the 70s. Yeah. I don't know. It was it it, it just felt discombobulated. Yeah, it's a it's a fascinating piece. I I actually like a lot of the score. I don't know if any of it is as good as The Last Dance or It's Raining Men, which are truly mm. amazing songs, you know. So credit to Mr. Paul Jabara. But um I'm actually surprised that more people don't sing from the score because there is the the lyrics are very clever in certain points and the music's good and it's varied you know it you know there's that broadway song that is very pastiche and yeah it feels very good yeah the score is interesting i'm shocked that, that more people don't perform from it i think it's a lack of having access right like there's right. not any good recordings of it right and i i wouldn't i mean i could probably get the sheet music from you but i don't know where else i would find that so yeah, I'm sure that's a big part of it, right? The thing I find interesting is I I think that there is something salvageable about this story. Okay. And about this show, but not as much with the score. Okay. There, there are some good songs, like the Streisand song, and even a couple of the ones from the beginning I think are great. And the Broadway one, I don't mind. I just don't know where you would use it. But when you got into the second half of the show, it really just like lost its luster. Right. So I think I do think that I mean, you'd have to like write a whole new show. But there is something in it. There's like a nugget of a good idea that I would love to see someone run with. You know, you've just you've inspired me of all these my favorite flop musicals productions on Broadway. I would love to see someone like <laughs> Douglas Carter Bean because there's a gay sensibility to the show that Absolutely. I think you need to incorporate. We have covered shows where I'm like, you need to bring a woman in. I think this is where you because this was written by very prominent gay people, mm. Paul Jabara and Tommy, and you know what I mean, like. I think that you need to bring in someone, a playwright who really understands or screenwriter, the sensibility. And maybe you pick out the songs that Paul Jabara wrote for the show that really work. And then you look at the rest of his catalog, like throw It's Raining Men in there. Oh, throw, please. Throw The Last Dance, make them work plot wise, clean up the plot. So you get the big hits, Paul Jabara. But then mm. you also get some nuggets that he wrote for the show, some of the, the more Broadway style numbers. Yeah. And maybe there a is a idea. show. Because at the heart, it's a you know the story of a girl from Brooklyn who goes to Hollywood, I think, <laughs> and things happen and she gets her dream. But then, you know, it's like an all about Eve's. I don't know, like right. What is it? What really happens when you get to the top, right? Yeah. What does it really feel like? And then, I mean, they always say like once you're at the top, you realize that if you weren't happy beforehand, you're not going to be happy when you're there, right? And maybe that's the conversation, you know, and. Who knows? Maybe there's even a way to weave in the autobiographical side of Paul, who unfortunately we lost his talent to AIDS in the nineties. Yeah. You know, I I don't know. Like you said, bringing in that that gay sensibility and that gay storyline, and um, what does that look like? Uh, maybe it isn't set in the seventies. Maybe it's a little bit later. You know, so you okay. can add in some of that. I don't know. Who knows? There, there, there are ways to play with it, but I, th I love sure. the idea of doing a Paul Jabara material-based musical and using again the nugget of inspiration from this show, right? With that leading lady and and her unconventionalness, and I just there's something about that that in is exciting to me as an actor and is exciting to me as a creative. But let's actually like talk about the season because like no sure absolutely even if this was a better show with bet in it i mean this was a rough season for broadway i'm pulling it up so i can follow you along because we had things like 42nd street big oh spectacle. And that was big yeah and then we had a little night music okay mr sondheim we had bet midler's one woman show we had the pajama game Okay. We had Raisin. We had the Magic Show. Okay. With Seesaw. Seesaw. Okay. We also had other flops like Gigi. What Seesaw? Uh. Yeah. Um. And I just threw this in there because it's my one of my favorite plays. But David Rabe's play in the Boom Boom Room. Hey, you love um, that play. I love that play. So weird, but I love it. You know, and and they had a whole Sondheim tribute show that was happening as well. Right. And so. When I look at that, I'm like, okay, so you have the big spectacle shows like 42nd Street, but then there's, and even Pajama Game, I guess you could say, is, right. is a spectacle show. 
But they're doing, they're already doing Sondheim tributes. And it's not like Sondheim had been around for a bazillion years at that point. It, it's not like he even wrote most of his shows. Like, come on. No. I, yeah. Like, I think he only had maybe four of them done now. By yeah. That point. And so, you know, they obviously, the Broadway community and the Broadway audience is craving that style of musical and this was meant to be this big spectacle that really wasn't and didn't work at all and so like either you are able to achieve the spectacle or you do these introspective musicals that are really interesting and and complicated and layered and you know and so like i don't know if this show even even if it had been a bit better in right. terms of structure and all that I don't know that it would have survived any longer. No, I, I think you're right. I think that, um, you know, Mr. Sondheim, Mr. Hal Prince, and Mr. Weber and Mr. Rice, James Broadway by this point, you know what mm -hmm. I mean? Um, shows like Superstar and Company just made us think differently, you know? And there's a reason that shows like a little, little night music, if that had happened in the 60s, like, come on, no, that would not have been a thing. <laughs> you know, like... Uh, even though I become a bigger fan of that show over time, mm -hmm. um, there's a cerebralness that I don't think we were prepared for a decade earlier. But no. in 1973, people were really into it. And, you know, Seesaw is a heavily flawed show, but definitely it's not this. This is a circus. I mean, Rachel Lilly is a, is a over-the-top, I don't think Broadway was ready for it kind of situation. <laughs> like, Yeah, well, and it seemed to it seemed to attach to certain people. Like one of the other quotes from that New York Times article I read was he noticed that there were moments where there were these crazy, like you call it circus moments yeah. that would get pockets of the audience giving standing O's. And at the end of the show, those like giving standing O's in the middle of the show. Right. Right. And then at the end, when the curtain comes down, those are the people who are standing with tears in their eyes, just so upset that this show is never more, right? And he's sitting there like, I don't understand. I don't get it. Like, I don't understand why anyone is attached to this. And that kind of comes back to this wonderful thing that is musical theater, where it can speak to one person and not to... People love Mamma Mia. Mm. They freaking mm. love it. And yes, it does do. not speak to me. Right. But I can respect that it does speak to those people. And I can right. also look at it from a creative standpoint and understand it, right? And so we as theater humans have this never-ending hope that it's going to be great. Yeah. And that it's going to change the world, right? Like right. we just have that instinct in us, you know? So many times we hear, oh, well, they just did it for the money. They just did it for the tax write-off. They just did it. And like, look, maybe the people who invest the big bucks do do it for that, which right. is fine. But those who are actually doing the creating of the show have this like never ending hope, even right. if like in their heart of hearts, they know it's dying. They don't care. They're going to keep going. They're going to keep trying to figure it out. And I well, love that. Well, and apparently that's how Ellen was with the show. Like she was mm. apparently like a tour de force that despite everything, she was determined to make this happen for herself. And I kind of admire that, you know, oh, I yeah. mean, delusion is, is a thing, but you know, hearing about the pockets of the audience, like crying and whatever, you know, I'm a flopaholic in a lot of ways, but I truly enjoy bizarre and, and quote unquote bad shows. Like one of my favorite experiences, and I saw the show three or four times was the first time I saw Scandalous, the Kathy Lee Gifford musical. Mm. And um, it truly had some moments. And you know my guffaw well. I don't know how many times our listeners have gotten to experience my very loud guffaw that I feel like I inherited from someone very special to us, Mr. Michael yes. Serter. Um, he is living through me. But yes. I, you know, there were just some ridiculous moments that should never be on a Broadway stage, but I live for them. And so <laughs> I'm there in the orchestra, not far from Kathy Lee, guffawing at things that I don't, it's one of those things that I'm like, this was on purpose, right? Because this is genius. And the rest of the audience is just dumbstruck. And I'm like, guffawing and the, the rest of the audience is looking around at me and they're like yep you're the one enjoying it you, you this, this we're here this to is, watch you sir this is for you and i'm like yeah. please give me more you know um <laughs> so i feel like i would have loved seeing this live but um 
I, if you know, if I'm going to sit through a flop, if I'm going to sit through something that's not a great piece of material, mm-hmm. I would rather it be Rachel Lily Rosenblum than just boring. You know, if it's I boring, agree. Like <laughs> this sounds like I'd be entertained, you know, right? and obsessed. But yes, you would. But here's the funny thing: is I was again going back to like this Broadway season. There are a lot of downers in this season. Yeah, this was the big one. This was the like feel good like yeah there are a lot of there are a lot of downers which is funny to me because of what was going on in the world generally we see if there's like a lot of bad stuff happening in the world right broadway swings the other direction right right? that was not the case i mean you had the end of the vietnam war which is great but that then immediately brought in our vice president resigning because of tax evasion and also watergate hearings begin (laughs) Mm, yep. So Nixon's a mess. You know, the pipeline in Alaska gets passed. There's a huge war over oil happening um, in Israel. Oh, and, wow. Yeah. And like Roe versus Wade happens. There's a lot going on. Yeah. Right? Fun fact, the World Trade Center gets finished during this year. But oh, yeah, it becomes the tallest building to that point. Um, there's a lot of not great life things happening. And so you expect them to like want to swing towards a show like Rachel, Rachel. Lily Rosenblum, but instead they swing towards a Sondheim tribute and a little, a little night music, music in the boom, boom room, which let me tell you, friends is not an uplifting show. Um, okay. It's not, <laughs> um, you know, it's very much a uncomfortable slice of life, but yeah. So it's just interesting to me that that that's the direction it swung. Right. This season. Yeah. You know, Broadway is an interesting place. And I think sometimes we do. I think most of the times we see, like you said, the, the what happens on stage is kind of an antithesis for what's happening in the real world. I, I would hope that the next two years of Broadway openings are very just amazing comedies and feel good things because the world needs some some warm and fuzzies uh, <sighs> after what we've been through. But yeah, I'm I'm shocked that I don't we don't see more like comedies, you know, in this particular season. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so let's talk about the legacy of Rachel Lilly. We've 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 said that the return to New York didn't happen until 2017 when Miss Tepper, uh, who is now in charge of all things programming at 54 Below, it's one, this is one of her favorite shows. She does it in concert, gets mm. pressed in the New York Times. But even the New York Times is like, well, I hope we never hear from it again. After that. So, <laughs> um, I, don't, I don't know if this will ever get revived, but the show did spawn some interesting things. Like, a lot of famous people in the ensemble of this. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, even the producing team, one of the guys went on to produce Evita. Oh, yeah. Robert Stigwood, he produced the Grease movie. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. So you've got that. You've got Tom Ian, who came into this because he wrote these over-the-top, ridiculous gay plays off-off Broadway that Bette used to do, you know? Mm-hmm. He's the book doctor. And then in like a decade, he's Mr. Dreamgirls. You know what I mean? So I like to think that that there may have been a nugget of Dreamgirls in this. Like, oh, yeah. I think that he just fine-tuned it. Maybe some of the over-the-top ridiculous became, and I'm telling you, you know? And became family treat. Like, things like that, yeah. where like you have that extra drama that right. is still grounded and still relatable and doesn't right. feel like such a soap opera, right? Right. Yeah, I mean, this was obviously where so many of them cut their teeth yeah. and learned a lot, I would like to think. I think that, you know, that drive you talk about from Ellen Green served her well because it's part of the reason that Little Shop became what it was. Absolutely. Well, and then I read this, I don't know if you did, Kelly Bishop and some of these people who were in it, it was this show and the drama that was happening during the creative process and the backstage antics that led people like Kelly Bishop to go to Michael Bennett and start telling their stories. This is what launched a chorus line. <gasps> no. This is where the first recording started was people being like, let me tell you how much this industry sucks. Wow. Yeah. There you go. So we may not have ever got a chorus line without this show. I mean, so, you know, props where props are due, right? Like, yeah. Or Wicked, Wayne Salento, hello. I mean, that's true. Half of Wicked is that choreography, you know, in the staging. Definitely. So. Yeah, it's it's always fun to see 
where like the paths people take, right? Right. Because nothing's by accident. Right. And that is really, I think there's something really special about when you're in something like this that's so intense and fails so miserably and so spectacularly. And what does that give you? Right. right? As, a, as a human, as a person, as a creative, as an artist, what does that give you? And where do you go next with that energy and with that? The, the lessons learned, I guess, right. is the way to phrase that. And it's hindsight's twenty twenty because now we get to look back on it and and play God a bit, you know, and be like, look at where they went and look at what this happened and this and this and this, you know. And I love right. that. But yeah, I think I think just like circling back two seconds to what we were saying a second ago, there's there's a world where part of this show exists again, right? Not in this iteration, but it, but in another. And I I would be really excited to see someone try and do that. Yeah, it would be fascinating. It would be fascinating. I mean, look, I was going to go on a diatribe about Ellen Green, but methinks we might get a chance to do that in a future episode. So, well, yeah. So, the our theme right now is a preview was enough. And for our next episode, we could have gone with something like Me Jack You Jill <laughs> or One Night Stand, which is great. Yes. Or the freaking out of Stephanie Blake. Or let my people come. But no. But no. (laughs) We're sticking with this theme and also following Miss Ellen Green into The Little Prince and the Aviator. Which famously makes her possibly the only actress to star in two shows that never opened on Broadway. I mean, that is an accomplishment. That's like getting a Razzie Award. I feel like we need to make a trophy for Ellen Green because, like, it can never happen again, as we spoke about in our one night. It happened one night episode. We should make the Greenie Awards. Should. The somewhere that's green, but spell it like Ellen Green's The somewhere that's green awards. (gasps) All right, kids. Thank you for listening to this Flopalicious episode. Uh, Part one of a preview was enough. We'll be back again in two weeks with part two, where we are talking about the amazing Little Prince and the Aviator. Um, So I'm excited to jump into that because I don't know the show at all. I don't either. Other than (laughs) us, the Little Prince. Um, Christina, where can they find us on the internet? Well, for social media, you can find us at My Favorite Flop on TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Yes, because we are millennials and we are still on Facebook. Yeah, it's never die. Um, <laughs> we also are on the web at www.myfavoriteflop.com where you can listen to all of our past episodes uh, and not just on our website. You can listen to them anywhere you listen to podcasts. But we especially love when you listen on Apple Podcasts because you can click that little subscribe button uh, and write us an amazing five-star review so that other flopaholics just like you could discover this podcast that's right so check in with us in two weeks time all right Christina do you got any parting words for our listeners I once asked Tom Jones if he ever forgets the lyrics he said it's not unusual but uh- <laughs> okay Bye. Bye.